Alright. Alright. Shall we begin? Yeah. Have you already been recording? Is that. <laughs> that does happen. Yeah, I've noticed when I've been <laughs> listening. Really, you actually listen. I listen to you, you guys. You know what little gems pop up in That's so, true, that's true. I don't know about you, but this is Lab Meeting 22. Woo, yeah. Little Taylor Swift reference for everything. So today's guest has. Yeah. I'm going to go through it all. Oh, a BSc in Applied Chemistry Forensic Science with honors and a PhD completed in 2013 titled Near Infrared Laser Dyes for the Detection of Latent Finger Prints? Marks. Finger Marks, yeah, finger yeah, marks. yeah, there's a difference. Oh, that's a, oh, that, oh, oof. That's, he's now a lecturer in the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences and more importantly, for the last semester, has actually been Minor Man's boss. Yes, well, the primary reason why I was invited, right? Welcome, Scott Chadwick. It's next semester. Do we have a job? <laughs> <laughs> we'll so see how it goes. What's the difference between finger marks and finger prints? All right, so there was, it used to just be fingerprints, like fingerprints was the be all and end all, yeah. like it would cover everything. But then in about the early 2000s, there was a shift in terminology. So a fingerprint is uh, like when they do reference prints, so they ink the prints or they do the live scan of the prints or it's the, um, you know where it's come from. Yeah, yeah, so you know it's come from this particular finger or anything like that. A finger mark is just any general impression that's left on a surface. So as when you go to open doors and you touch things, you're leaving behind a finger mark of your fingerprint. Okay. Right. So, so when you're going out into the field and dusting, you're yeah. actually dusting for marks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so yeah. from like the academic society has adopted the finger mark terminology because they're the ones that came up with it and they're like a bit of uh, self-importance, like but the actual fingerprint examiners and everything, so they're still looking Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. But when it comes to PhD theses, we've got to use the right the right terms. Yeah. Well, yours was a while ago. How well do you remember it or you just wiped it from your brain? Um, well, it's, it sort of had to come back into my memory now because I've actually got an honours student picking up some of the stuff. So there was a really long gap. So, I, yeah, I finished in 2013 and then I did quite a lot of teaching and stuff, which we'll probably get to. Um, and then the research side of things kind of died off, but now things have kind of balanced out a bit more and there's been a kind of renewed interest, not so much in the work that I did, but the idea of looking at fingerprints outside into the near infrared. Um, and so we're exploring that in a bit more details and sort of picking up where I left off um, and then moving forward, trying out new stuff with our super mega powders and things. Okay, cool. We've got to come back to the science behind it. Um, but as we've stated, you've done your PhD, you're over. Yeah. Um, so you're obviously at a very different stage of your career. You're teaching here now, you've progressed to that. Um, tell us where are you at in an analogous sense, if you will. Oh, okay, well. I know you're ready. Yeah, like I, I prepped for this and like, I had prepped for this beforehand and I had a, an excellent analogy. What, before we asked? Yeah, it was like, oh yeah, no, because no, I, I was a fan, I was listening to the podcast and I was like, actually that's a really cool way to think about it. So uh, with Kirsty's analogy with the gremlins and that, I was like, yeah, like that makes sense. And then Joel with Groundhog Day and that, I was like, yeah, it makes sense. And I was like, oh, what? If I was ever to be asked, what would I possibly Why? consider? Uh, and then I was like, oh, you know, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings. 
I obviously hadn't listened to all your episodes, and then it wasn't until the yeah. last episode with Trent where you mentioned it about how you're on your journey. Yeah. The early ones are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, like now it's gone. And then by that point, we'd already been in discussions. So I was like, oh. You have multiple analogies. Yeah. But then I thought, you know what? I think I can do a bit better than Lord of the Rings. And I don't want to spoil, like, Lord of the Rings is your analogy, and I don't want to spoil anything that sort of comes up. In that analogy, so uh, you know, I, I thought it's something else, and oh, it's just a bit, bit hot. So hold on, <laughs> let me just oh. uh, let me just uh, get this. Oh my god, the reveal! So for those of us engaging in the uh, audio me, it's got some of a Jurassic Park t-shirt. Because a and PhD is exactly like Jurassic Park. Oh, that's right. <laughs> now. You've all seen Jurassic Park, right? Oh, yes. Okay, cool. Because I have to ask that question now. And that would be yes. yeah. Otherwise, I'd have to ask you to leave. Now, um, from a general perspective, if we're looking at it just overall, the sort of take-home message of Jurassic Park of life finds a way is really the sort of idea of what a PhD journey is. Because, uh, you know, there are challenges... And there's, you know, things that you've got to overcome and there's a certain beauty in your life and life itself. Uh, and it's about finding your way through your life in your PhD. And while you may start off with something that you really want to do and that you're really focusing on, uh, the whole journey of a PhD is more about finding you and yourself and what you enjoy. So. Outside of the science. Um, outside of so, science, but then also like what you want to do for the rest of your life. Like okay. reflecting on my experience, I never wanted to go into research or anything like that even before I started my PhD. Hmm. It was only that an opportunity sort of came up. I enjoyed my honours project and then there was some sort of funding attached to it. So that allowed me to do my PhD. Uh, and then from doing the PhD, like I was able to do teaching. And that's what I really enjoyed more than the research side of things. And then that's obviously led to where... I'm at now where I get to do the teaching every day so you know it's about you finding your path and your future and what you're passionate about uh, and you know life finds a way and that's your you'll find a way through your PhD and while you may not be at the end of it in the exact same field or where you thought you would have been you know it's about finding yourself and what you're passionate about which is kind of more important. But more specifically, we're going to reference specific I scenes. I think it's more important that you don't actually have to do research after you finish your PhD, and it speaks volumes to me, particularly. Yeah. Oh, the skills you get from a PhD are project management skills, mm. your independence, problem solving, critical thinking, and managing time, people, and other things. Mm. And those skills are obviously applicable to any sort of field. So exactly. I graduated with a whole group of, we started our PhDs at the same time, and we've all sort of gone into different fields so someone's gone into the field that they researched in they're now working at the Australian Federal Police yep. they liked it it was great one person said you know what research isn't for me I actually prefer the teaching I'm going to go do high school teaching yeah. another guy was like I hate forensic science now uh, but I really like <laughs> I really like bossing people around and, and being uh, you know a boss so I'm going to go into project management mm -hmm. and so his whole PhD was a project that had to be managed and that you know, yeah, gave him the skills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, it's all about finding what your, hmm. you know, strength is and applying it to either what you're passionate about, whether it be your research or something else entirely. So, hmm. 
Sorry, you were saying more specifically. Yeah, more specifically. <laughs> All right, now we're going to go into like yeah. scenes or snippets, yeah? So. Well, no, that's, that's, too, that's too biological for me. But the belt is an amazing scene that was only brought to my attention more recently. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. I've obviously had this discussion with him. It's part of the PSP interviews. They need to have seen Jurassic Park. Um, so there's a scene at the beginning of me when they first arrive after the helicopter, they're in the Jeep. And then, you know, they see the Brachiosaurus and they're just in awe of the majesty of this, of this beast. They do move in herds. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like, before you start your PhD or research experience, you, you see these PhD students or researchers in the wild, more or less, and you're really inspired by what they're doing. You're like, you know what, this is actually really good and I'm really interested and this could be something that I, I want to do. And so then you're like, okay, I'll sign up to do a PhD and that's, that's what I'm going to do. So when you start your PhD, it's like the gates of Jurassic Park opening up. And it's all this, you think, oh, this is going to be this amazing experience and I'm going to come out of it enlightened and it's going to be great. And then just like at the start of their ride, it's pretty disappointing. There's no dinosaurs that they can see. It's very anticlimactic. There's just a whole lot of like, okay. Yeah, you're just sort of looking around. Yeah, you're like, a lot of boxes. Yeah, you're like, is this, is this what it's meant to be like? Is, when are the dinosaurs going to show up? When the majesty is going to show up? And then all of a sudden it turns to shit. And then there's something, some cataclysmic event occurs. Uh, the ride shuts down, disaster strikes. What was once this majestic beast of a PhD is now turned into this monstrous T-Rex that will devour you at any point. Yeah, and you can't even take a shit without it biting your head off because you're always just thinking about it constantly. Like it's just, it's this monstrosity that you've got to, you, and you, you spend a lot of your time trying to outrun it and just try to get away from it and avoid it completely. Just like they avoid the T-Rex. But there is hope. So, you know, you start to get your PhD back on track. Maybe there's papers, maybe there's a conference or whatever. And that's just like when they start to get the park back online. So they've reset the powder and you've got, you know, Samuel sitting in there and he sees the little flashing thing on the computer screen. And he's like, yeah, right, okay. We're good. We're good, we're good. And then, you know, he's like, okay, He's kind of like a co-supervisor or collaborator. It's like, yeah, we can get this on track. All we got to do, I'll go and turn the, the power on in the park and we'll get this thing on track and we'll be all good. And then they don't hear from Samuel Jackson for a while. And he's, he's disappeared entirely, which does happen occasionally. Co-supervisors or collaborators can disappear. And then you're like, okay, well, screw this. I got to go do this myself. So then you're Laura Dern. You're going into the, the park. There's velociraptors around. There's people wanting to kill you. It's going to happen. Then you get there. You do what the collaborators said they were going to do yourself. And then they're just there to pat you on the back after you've done all the hard work. Now, in the movie, that's just the dismembered arm of Samuel L. Jackson patting Laura Dern on the back. Yes. And then she has to outrun the Velociraptors again. So, you know, you try and take the little wins uh, where you can. And then you get back to the visitor center. And you think everything's okay, like everything's kind of settled down. You're sort of at the end stages of your PhD. You think, I'm finally safe, I can get off this island, everything's good. Then those motherfucking velociraptors come for you in your kitchen. And that is your assessors. Yeah, those two assessors. Yeah. yeah, you've got your hand shaking, you're like, I'm gonna submit my PhD, and then they're, they're coming for you. Like they're gonna hunt you down, and you spend you know, you're waiting for your assessor to come back, so you're hiding in the kitchen, you know, you've got that, that oven trick thing, which is amazing. And they're gonna, the, the assessors are sniffing out your errors, they're gonna tear you to shreds. It's, it's gonna be, it's a very traumatic time for you. 
But then again, you escape the velociraptors, you, uh, you know, address your comments, and you think that you're done for, but then, so you know, there's a scene where they're all on the uh, fossils and they're trying to escape the velociraptors. They've got one on the other side, one on the other side, and then all of a sudden, the T-Rex emerges out of there, triumphant, fights off the velociraptor. Twist, by the end of your PhD, you are that T-Rex. <laughs> you are throwing those assessors' reports out the window saying, I am the champion, I am the captain of this, I am the T-Rex, this is, this is me. This, this is, is my PhD. Yeah, this is my PhD, I'm the king of the jungle or whatever it is when you ruled the earth, so... That's the journey of a PhD as Jurassic Park. That's beautiful. That is exceptional. <laughs> the fact that there were notes. Oh, this is the second draft of notes. I didn't I didn't wanna I didn't wanna fuck it up. That's, you didn't fail those. No, no, that's you lifted us to lofty heights. Oh wow! Okay. I'm really. You've had an ex- yeah. You've had an experience. Really, now. you can't take a shit out of it. Yeah, it consumes your life. Like that is. All right. Okay. I hate that. I hate that. That's gonna happen, but it's gonna happen. If it hasn't happened though, yeah, you're doing pretty well. Oh, I know. Yeah, pretty I hard to make sure things aren't all consuming. Yeah, and, and it, I'm it not is. Not very good at being all consumed. It is about balance, for sure. So speaking of journeys then, Scott, yes. um, why do you do science? What made you interested? And what, what is the own what is your own origin story of Dr. Chadwick? Where, how did you get into it? Okay. Um, so I guess I've always kind of had an interest in um, puzzles and a general sort of curiosity uh, for things like always trying to find out why things work, what sort of, um, you know, how things are made, finding out what, you know, what's around us. And then just any sort of problem solving. So, you know, try and figure those out. And then, yeah, like I would do like thousand piece puzzles when I was like 10 or whatever. I would never really finish them, but just the idea of pieces uh, being put together and then trying to, you know, get the kind of bigger picture. And I enjoyed, you know, that sort of stuff. So that was... I, that's how my brain has kind of always operated and then you know moving into science I mean it's certainly something where you know there is obviously that problem solving and piecing things together and getting more of an understanding of how the world works uh, and everything like that so I always had an interest in science and you know I did uh, you know science all through high school and that but it was actually my worst subjects that I ever did oh, preach. yeah so like I you know, I did chemistry, physics, two-unit maths, and they were all the worst subjects for the mm. HSC for me. So I enjoyed it, but I was never really good at it. Like, mm. I always had to work twice as hard to be half as good as anyone who did it. And the teachers would always say, they're like, oh, you know, he's really interested in it, and you can see him you know, wanting to apply himself, but putting it in a quiz or putting it in an exam, like, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. My best subjects were the ones that I could bullshit in, which were your English, history, legal mm, studies, all those sorts of... Yeah, yeah. Journeys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, that's... And um, so then... But I... Because I'd always had an interest for science. Um, I mean, I didn't start out planning to be a scientist until... And particularly a forensic scientist until probably year nine... You're eight, you're nine, because I was around. It was actually that early. Uh, yeah, f- talking to students now, 
they're like, oh, you know, I'm just doing this. Someone else picked mine for me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> I just got lucky. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and so, yeah, like I, I, it was around the time that CSI came out. So I was oh. one of those CSI oh. kids. And like, you know, to be yes. honest, that, that linked a lot to what I liked about, you know, science was the problem yeah. solving and also the application to the real world and using science to solve crimes and all these Sort of there cool is a things. real appeal to that. Like I've been working with a lot of work experience students, mm. and they come through and they do the forensic stuff, and they go, yeah. "I love CSI and I love forensics. I'm going to do this." So it's yeah. Like, wow, that works. Yeah, cool. yeah, and it's it's you know it's certainly a bit more accessible to people because it's you know interesting to see all you know there's heaps of TV shows, not just CSI, but also your Law and Orders and yeah, yeah, all the yeah. crime shows. And I think people have a certain fascination with with crime and and all those sorts of, you know, the true crime documentaries yeah. on Netflix and that. So we have a morbid curiosity um, that I think a lot of people latch onto. But yeah, as scientists who really like processes and things going in the right spot, mm. it matches up beautifully as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and for me, I also liked, I didn't want to be someone who's stuck at a desk all day doing the same thing over and over. So I'd always yeah. wanted to, even doing the undergrad in forensics, it was again, not wanting to do research, I was like, I want to go out in the field, either be a crime scene officer or anything like that. Mm. Um, so, knew I wanted to do forensics from year nine, so I chose all the subjects, was rubbish in the science ones, but, you know, that didn't matter because... Made it all through. <laughs> scraped through. So, I was actually pretty lucky. Um, the UAI, which is now the ATAR, wow. I know. Dangerous. <laughs> Um, was like 91 point something and then I got not that um, but it was like 89.9 so it killed me <laughs> that I was 0.1 uh, and like I was this overachiever like nerd that did like 13 units and like all this you know surprised that I'm that extra but you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because you know I'm, I'm super chill yeah. all the time I'm definitely not not extra at all um, and so I'd done all this stuff and I didn't get the, the ATAR that I wanted or that would get me in so I was going to go to WSU because uh, I had another forensic yeah. program had a low ATAR but then you know the powers that be the, the ATAR actually reduced because they doubled the intake so it went down and I was able to come in and then there's this sort of you know and again it's I, I, if you, when Is you there have a, a bit of a warning period over that summer where you got your ATAR and oh, you didn't, it wasn't like, you wanted it. Yeah, look, there was a, a sore loser period for me because there were, I was, there were people that I went through high school with that, you know, skipped classes but chose very, the softer of the sciences. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, you know, they did the biology and the earth and environmentals. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, uh, I wasn't as mature as I am now, so I was like, oh, you guys did all the easy subjects, so of course you got a higher, you know, ATAR or UAI than me, uh, and they still tend to give, and then one of my friends complained until she got a higher, she, yeah, she appealed, and so I was like, this is, this is bullshit, I work, you guys all skipped classes, and here I am, like, slogging away in chemistry and physics, um, but, you know, I've, I've grown, yeah, I've matured, I definitely don't hate biology or environmental sciences at all. No, you employ yeah, some people. Yeah, talk to us these You're days. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, look, diversity hires, you know, I get yeah. a kickback, yeah. so it's fine. Do have a quota here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, and so, yeah, and then I was able to do it here, and then that sort of, 
got the opportunity to do an internship at the police as well during my time and then do honours, um, which I really enjoyed because I was kind of my essentially my own boss. I didn't have to rely on other people because mm. that was a big, um, you know, the group work things. That's and how, Yeah, and the, just that taste of, you know, you're responsible for something so you get absolute freedom more or less to kind of within reason you know, do whatever hours work for you. Yeah, do and you want to take Tuesday? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And it was good, like that sort of flexible thing because mm-hmm. I was doing an internship at the same time so I could work there for two days, do my, you know, weekends at Woolies and then come mm-hmm. and do, you know, get in at eight o'clock and work until five and just sort of churn it all out. So just the experience I got was quite positive. Uh, and then there was a ARC grant linked to it. And so then that was like, okay, cool. That's something to do. And then at the end of the PhD, it was kind of like, for job for industry or do I stay in the teaching because I was still doing sort of teaching stuff at the same time so industry was always something that I wanted to do but it's just not I guess the plan that Were life had for me. already coordinating or teaching pretty heavily by the end of your PhD? Uh, yeah so I started my first time teaching was in my first year of my PhD and yeah, I was okay. just taking like casual teaching prac classes yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then that sort of grew to so it was originally starting only in the forensic subjects and then it moved into first year chemistry at the end of 2011 and then so I did a lot more sort of first year chemistry then and then in 2013 that was the last year of my PhD so I had like six months left um, there was a casual lecturer here that had done it in 2012 where the SFS was awful that they were like we can't bring this person back so they were like okay we'll advertise for a casual lecturing position for chem one uh for you know anyone who's available and they send it out to the phd students and because i was kind of at that time where i'd sort of you know towards the end had a bit of experience in the subjects from the prac side and had done conference presentations and things like that that they were like yeah sure you'll do four weeks of lectures uh in these specific topics um, which were kind of more abstract towards, so they were like valence shell electron pair repulsion theory, Lewis yeah, diagrams. Yeah, someone on record was saying, I don't know much about chemistry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty amazing that you can come out and do something that's a bit more abstract yeah. from your own field. Yeah, and I think particularly for me, because chemistry wasn't a strong subject for me, I had to work at it to try and help me understand it. And so it was that struggle that I went through to understand things that I felt make me or made me a better teacher of that stuff because mm. I could uh, sympathise with the students a bit more who maybe didn't get the concept because it didn't mm. come as naturally to them. So I would be like, okay, this is what we're going to learn. And I'm like, this is how I kind of try to remember it. Like, you know, these are some suggestions for, you know, how you can think about these sorts of things. So using a lot of analogies and, and things like that I found were helpful for me mm. and that, that's yeah. how I sort of well, I think taught. that was really helpful for the first year students. Yeah. So did I teach you? I didn't teach yeah. you. I taught you? Yeah. Were you in my 20 minute lecture, the first lecture I ever gave? You were in Ian, you taught Ian, I don't think you taught me. No, because when did you start? 2012, I started. So, yeah. so it was the shocking one. It was in, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll TB. I started here in 2013. Yeah, okay, so yeah, you definitely would have had my 30-minute lecture that people still come up to me and remember. They're like, I remember your first lecture, and it went for 20 minutes, and it was an hour slot. So we were like, yes. I have heard that that happens to a lot of people doing their first lecture, though. Oh, yeah. It's just like, wow, I thought there would be more content. Yeah, yeah, and like, it was a packed house, because the other the other uh, lecture was at like 6 o'clock at night, so everyone, and so this one was in the middle of the day, uh, the uni hall one, so like, first one so is like 400. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah yeah and like packed like people in the, in the and then like some of the PhDs that they came to like support me and, and whatever and they were like <laughs> where are we going to sit and so they like sat in the front row and then by about the 20 minute mark they're like looking at me like is that, is that, it? Is that, is that it I'm like yeah that's, um, that's it guys yeah I'm like um, thanks that's, that's it for today guys I'll uh, see you tomorrow and then I had the repeat at five o'clock, so I was like, "Oh look, I'll just chuck in some extra questions." And yeah, 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 yeah. And then it made it to thirty-five minutes, and a couple more awkward exactly. questions or sits there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just we'll, to eat up time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll just uh, you know put this video on half speed. Uh, so yeah, and then just they, transition through. Yeah, and so then they, the, I got quite nice and positive student feedback. Thanks, Anne. Uh, and so then they're like, okay, we'll bring it back for the next semester. And then, you know, it then transitioned into a part-time role. So I was able to do more teaching in other subjects. Uh, and then it turned into a full year contract because somebody was on PEP and that person never came back, which was good. And then, um, so it's, oh, it stands for something, but it's like a sabbatical for academics. So they get to go somewhere else and do research or whatever they like. Um, and so I was just on contract to contract for about three years and then they finally um, were able to advertise a full-time position that I was then successful in getting, but that was a challenge. Getting, moving from that contract to contract full-time? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I was, no, and I was more or less told that even though I, so I took chemistry one through a full redevelopment. Uh, in 2015 so it went from three hours of lectures a week to an hour and a half mm. we introduced practice in the super lab like there was all these massive changes that I was kind of left with taking because the other person um, had gone so I was taking all the lectures all the redevelopment and it was a significant load of time and I you know took it all through at the end of that year I was like am I going to get a contract for next year and they're like oh, oh yeah just hold on and I was like can we make sort of is there any chance of it being a permanent thing they're like look if you were to apply for your own job you wouldn't be competitive oh. yeah that was the words that got sort of passed down and then they're like oh if you wanted to become an academic you should have focused on your research see yeah you were more than your age index this is yeah yeah and that's you know coming at it from a teaching, uh, like a very teaching focused role, they're very difficult to sort of come by. Like it, it's very, yeah. it's very hard to see someone transition into uh, a teaching role. I mean, it's, it's, I, w I wouldn't say it's getting easier. There are a few more opportunities coming through universities now. So more uh, yeah, so there's, they created these scholarly teaching fellows where you know, their primary role is for teaching. So their teaching allocation is 70%, their research allocation is 20%. So that sounds ideal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's and the people that are really passionate about teaching obviously gravitate to those roles and do an excellent job, and they give them their heart and soul in that, yeah. but they're not given the same sort of... Um, I don't want to say... Uh, they're not given the same... Yeah, yeah. Like, they're viewed as sort of, you know, lesser academics... Uh, and it's reflected in their sort of grades because you know they're only responsible for the, the teacher. Grades, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Compared to somebody who's seventy percent research and they're they're built up as these holier than thou, mm. uh, amazing. But they can't teach to save themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. See and, before. And, and teaching. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, teaching from a university like t the university is an educational institute. Someone's got to build it. The you know we're here to open the minds of the future in the way that we do that is through our teaching yeah. a student coming in from high school is not going to be like ah oh, check out them rankings <laughs> that QS 
score yeah. is pretty amazing. They're going to come to a class. They're going to see whether the lecturer has made them feel comfortable, if they're enjoyed what they're doing, if the lecturer enjoys teaching those students, and that's what's going to keep them staying. And they're not going to be like, well, that person got an ARC grant, so I... Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go. They don't even know how to access journal articles for third year. Yeah. As much as I'm teaching them to do that in first year, (laughs) they still won't do it. No. And it's... no idea who's who. Yeah. And, you know... I mean, to be honest, I don't really figure those sorts of things out until it was the honours or, or PhDs, exactly. and even then. And I was like, oh, you're, you're a big deal. Oh, yeah. That's what an ARC linkage is? Oh, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, but if you know, you see someone, like, as you said, you've been taught by people who are these research stars, and so was I, but when they taught you, you were like, well, I was definitely like, yeah. I was like, this is garbage. Like, like, this is my grandfather. Yeah, <laughs> you're, using, you're using clip art images in your PowerPoints. Like, that's... <laughs> From like the nineteen nineties, like a bit of shade from the GIF slash meme king. Oh, uh, <laughs> look, that's some heavy shade. Yeah, come on, keep up with the times. That's you know, Stay keep right it fresh. Right. Although apparently my memes aren't so fresh anymore. Uh, it's the fact that a lot of people have just been born after two thousand. Like, don't even start me. I know. We, we, I think we had this conversation where these people wouldn't. The students that we're currently teaching now would never have had a digital camera because every no. every really? camera that they would have had them would have been on their phone so like you know when they don't know what Motorola flip phones are <laughs> no is that is that like, yeah yeah <laughs> and that ha- I'm sure that had a camera in it so it did but like still yeah that was a classic yeah um there you go so what are some of the key skills that you have brought or that you think teaching requires that you've brought across from your PhD or learning outside or maybe it's just your passion for teaching? Yeah, um, I think it's definitely, well, passion and enthusiasm is definitely like the biggest thing Um, because I always take the opinion that if you can't be passionate or enthusiastic about the content that you're teaching and you're getting paid to do that, then why the hell should any of the students care? Because if you don't care about it, then why should they? So you've got to give them a reason to, you know, give a shit. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. You can see right through Yeah, and if you're just like, oh, I've got to give this lecture again, like, of course, they're going to be like, oh, I've got to show up to this lecture again and hear this lecturer be really bored about the thing that they've taught 10 or 15 times. So, you know, for, it may be your 15th time taking that lecture, but it's their, it's their first time. So if you such an entertainment perspective. <laughs> but that's what you have but to do. It's what it like, is. you have to be an entertainer for them. I mean, sure, make it educational, get them to learn, but you are more or less, particularly with those very large classes that the first year ones are, like you are there to keep them entertained, to keep them engaged. And if you, you can do that very easily, like enthusiasm in the classroom is contagious. If you're enthusiastic, and you guys would have seen it in your workshops, like when you get really passionate about something that you're teaching, you know, in, in PSP, is yeah. that jazz? <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, just have my I like I was talking to one of my groups about CRISPR. Like, they're like, um, what are we gonna pick off this ethics thing for that yeah. ethics debate? I was like, do CRISPR, this is a thing I've been learning about. I think it's really interesting. They're like, yeah. Oh, you're into it. I was like, yeah. I'm into it, and they're like, okay, we'll do that then. I was like, yeah. It's just interesting. So they went off and did that and came back and gave some great stuff. I was yeah. like, cool and stuff I didn't know and yeah. I've been researching it like in my own part it's yeah. really interesting yeah and like they like they're they're very like I don't think we give students enough credit for their judgement of 
teachers and, and academics because they're they're well they're the, they're the consumer yeah, yeah. in a sense yeah no it, <laughs> well, I, I have I, yeah they are they are <laughs> they, they are consumers in the sense that we are offering them a product yeah um, which is more we're not offering them an education anymore it's, it's a product yeah it's a uh, product. I have yeah yeah we're not gonna uh, go there but yeah the passion and enthusiasm is definitely the sort of biggest uh, thing but the other thing that uh, was really important that I got from my PhD that is now really helpful for me is just that idea of organisational skills and keeping on track of things, keeping on track mm. of deadlines because I take PSP which has 700 students in it this semester and I do Chem 1 as well which has a thousand students in there and you know you have to make sure that the students are given enough time that like you need to know when the deadlines are going to be, when you have to give them the specific information for stuff that they have enough time to prepare and so that they or feel... To stimulate them. Yeah, and so that they feel, uh, you know, that they're being looked after. Mm. Because particularly in the first year uni and first semester, you've got students who, you know, have come from small rural schools where they had, you know, maybe 30 students in their class and they're coming to a lecture that has 400 people sitting in there. And where they may have been the top of that particular class, you know, they're now... Essentially, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it was for me. I yeah. went from big fish in a small pond to holy crap, this yeah. is a big pond. Yeah, and if, if you know you're not feeling supported or looked after, if you mm. are starting to think that oh, you know this person, the, the person running this subject has no idea, well then you're going to have a negative opinion of that subject. You're going to have a negative opinion of the university, and it just creates this sort of negativity. So making sure that everything's organised makes things a lot easier, so that then you can you know become positive and enthusiastic and the students feel that you're looking after them and that they have a certain trust uh, in you that you will you know give them what um, the support that they need when they need it so you're and you're, you're one of the exponents I've noticed because I'm working with you in the sense of moving away from those large lectures to smaller individualized one-on-one teaching like our PSP classes yep. are 28 kids yep. two students or two teaching associates mm-hmm. the whole way through like there's yep. no large lectures yep. I'm a large fan of that personally yeah. um, I think it supplies me with an income as well <laughs> but I think, it, I think it's a much stronger structure of teaching than sit here listen to me yeah. go to your lab never see me again yeah and um, well PS, so PSP is one of these sort of special cases because uh, it used to have lectures so mm. before I before I took it on board, and I mean you taught in it before, the yeah, first, you you experienced first it. iteration, and they <laughs> and they had they had lectures, mm. and it was uh, you know they had two hundred and fifty students in it in the spring, and ten students were showing up to the lectures, and because the whole point of the subject is not about the development of their knowledge per se, they don't necessarily learn what a cell is, how to balance a chemical equation. It's about developing their skills and their confident confidence in themselves in science. Mm. They don't need a, they don't need someone at the front telling them this is how you should you know this is principle number one yeah this practice. yeah <laughs> you've got to be you know here's how you give a presentation like yeah it's better for them to be hands on be doing the things and that that hands on learning is so much more efficient and effective yeah, yeah. It, it it and for that subject it completely works but for something like chemistry one where yeah. there is no uh, you know, there are students that have no chemistry background. If we were to go solely with just a workshop, they could probably feel a lot, they'd feel like they'd be missing out on some of the information because you'd have in those smaller classes, you'd still have quite a 
disparate. Quite a spread. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it's time and place. But if you are going to have lectures, well, then you give them a reason to show up. You make it fun and engaging, and you know, you do stupid things like I tend to do. Uh, you know, put names and gifts and whatever, whatever you can get. Like, you know, for me, I also see it as that I'm. So chemistry one has thousand students, but only 10 of 10% of them will go on to do any further chemistry. Yeah. So mm. here I am selling chemistry and 90% of the people aren't buying it. And so I have to, you know, put my salesman hat, my showman hat on, my tap shoes, whatever works. <laughs> yeah, razzle dazzle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to, to try and get them excited about chemistry. And you know, yeah, it's, it's good, I like it. It's the best part, like the, Behind the scenes stuff, it's a necessary evil, but getting to go into a class and, you know, either lecture to them or Being even... Extra, if you yeah, know. well, yeah. It certainly helps. Yeah, yeah, and even just seeing how they interact with you guys in your prac classes, even at the start. I took, sort of five minutes. I took one of my kids on a field trip. Oh, nice. like, You're outstanding. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I need someone, so what are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, it is really important that you get to know them. Yeah. How do you switch off from your work? Like, it can be all-consuming... Even yeah. I'm teaching this semester, I'm getting in. I was at two thirty on a Saturday morning. I'm like, oh, excuse me, why? Yeah, submitting assessments five days late. Like, oh. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, um, yeah, how do you switch off? Well, what's it took, important it, to be able to maintain that work-life balance? It took me quite a while to to get that. So for a lot of the time, I would just focus on the work because, again, particularly when you're on contracts, you want to be. You don't know whether you're going to have a job next year so you're like you make a lot of sacrifices for yourself to make yourself indispensable to to do it and I end up I didn't end up ever having a holiday for like three years because I always had this thought of yeah I could you know phone it in this time but what happens if that's the time that they're going to be like oh you know we're going to judge you on this particular thing so the work-life balance for a long time wasn't wasn't there and then how I have now started to switch off, it's about finding other things that interest you. So it was really good during the PhD, like we had a kind of good group of people, like we'd go out, like you'd go to the gym and then we'd have a fat Friday, like go to Star City Buffet or we'd find reasons to kind of, and having a sort of support group around you certainly helps um, as part of PhD, but also in academia. But now uh, it's what I've, I find, you know, passion in, other things so particularly like you know movies TVs mm. all those sorts of things so to switch off I will go home and binge watch certain things just to kind of tune out and the phone goes down Put away, yeah. yeah and they, like it'll go down it'll beep I'll check it if it's not immediate I'll leave it until the next day yeah. and it's you know setting boundaries within yourself and, and making sure that you kind of stick to them because yeah you can spend a lot of time being like look I, and again there are still times where I'm like I could reply to this email right now and fix it and it'll take me five minutes or I can leave it until tomorrow when I may or may not have another 20 of these and spend my whole day replying to emails. So I think it's just trying to find kind of what works for you and, you know, making sure that you don't burn the candles at both ends more or less. But it it takes time and I don't think there's one solution kind of for everyone. But you've just got to... always individual. Yeah, and you've just got to find something that, you know, you enjoy outside of work because if work becomes your focus and it can be very much like that as a PhD as well as you know in, in the real world um, you've got to find something else because if you derive joy 
only from your work, then what when, else yeah, <laughs> if the work stops when the PhD is done, yeah. what else do you have? Is there such thing as? Because I was talking to my girlfriend about this because she's doing. Um, uh, prac teaching at the moment for her degree she's doing high school teaching and she was saying that when a lot of people finish their prac teaching after that six week period because yeah. I think it takes six to seven weeks to develop habit then you stop mm. a lot of people get into post-prac depression yeah. has that been a thing post-PhD have you heard of I don't know I've only just um, put the, I've only put two and two together like literally just now so question, <laughs> question without notice yeah no I think mm, I think by the time you finish your PhD, like you, it just the end drags on for so long. You're just so like, I mean, for me, I submitted in June, um, and then did all my talks and everything. As far as I was concerned, this was the it went to the reviewers after that, mm. uh, and then I was like, okay, that's done. And then it was like a eight to ten week waiting period while you're waiting for the supervisor report to come back. I had a uh, delay because they'd sent the letter to an American who read it as an American um, date. So rather than the 8th <laughs> of July, they read it as the 7th of August. So then the six weeks, which is how long it meant to take. Good Americans, man. Uh, the, the, you know, administration of the graduate research school is also to blame because they'd also uh, emailed me about somebody else's thesis. <laughs> There was all these uh, other issues. So it just sort of dragged on and then you get the reviews back and then you, you know, depending on how long you've got until the, confer the next conferral date is, you either do it really quickly or you sort of put it off, just sort of drags off. And then I conferred in like the October, was never notified that I'd actually become a doctor <laughs> until I rang the, the graduate research school. And they're like, oh yeah, it was like three days ago. I'm like, oh, okay. Lucky yeah. And so, you know, and you hand like, I will say that the submitting of your PhD final thesis is the most anticlimactic thing. And Don't I, spoiler alert! No, but it, it's something like you build up to it, and like you go and you give it to somebody somewhere. I think mean, now you guys we you used don't to even do that anymore. yeah. So we had to get it yeah. bound in like books and everything. So you're like yes, this is, this is the books. Yeah. yeah, they get they like. You can choose to get it bound, but the, the university won't reimburse you anymore. But it's yeah. something I definitely recommend that everyone should do just I'm for your own. <laughs> you say I'm extra, oh, mate. And then so you get it. Well, when I did it, you got it bound. You give it to someone, and they're like, "Okay, thanks." Are all the forms here? I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." And they're like, "Okay, great." And that's it. Like, there's no, no, there's no sort of, oh, congratulations. It's a really great achievement. Like, and you know, your supervisor like, oh, okay, good. Yeah. Like there's for me. Yeah. It, it's spoiler alert. Gonna be, it's going to be, it's going to be a letdown. Um, and then it just sort of drags on. And I remember talking to people that had finished their PhD and you know, and they're like, oh yeah, I got my certificate. Like, and I just hang it in my toilet. Like, you know, it was just sort of like this. Oh yeah, I did it. It's not that. It's not that big deal. Sort of resented. Yeah, and then I was like, mate, like, are you kidding me? Like, you've got a PhD. Like, that's the most exciting thing in the world. And they're like, yeah, it's really not. <laughs> and well, that's been interesting with Paloma. I've been mm. speaking to her. She's just finished. She's like, yeah. Well, I was like, okay then. Yeah, and I think uh, it's important that yes, a PhD is an amazing achievement, and that you've done it, and you've generated new knowledge, 
uh, and it's it's really exciting. And if you can, you know, acknowledge that yourself, then that's great. Come in with your eyes open and maybe, you know, don't be thinking that everyone's going to be as excited about it, mm-hmm. but also, uh, you know, be aware that it shouldn't be your greatest achievement because you think about, I think about what I did in my PhD and I like, cause now I've got an honest student doing the same sort of thing. I'll go through it and I'll say, damn, I was smart back then. Like you read it and I was like, did I write that? Like, did I actually do that? Yeah. I was like, Jesus. I was like, and then you also like, I don't even remember doing that experiment. Like how did that even happen? Like, uh, but then, you know, you look back at it and you're like, yeah, it's great. But then you also think about, okay, well, what have I done since then? And, you know, you think about that as your greater accomplishments. It's more what you do sort of afterwards. Yes, the PhD is great and it's an achievement, but if the PhD is your be-all and end-all and after you do your PhD, you kind of hit your peak. Oh, that would be sad. That'd be worse than peaking in high school. Yeah, oh, it is. Because there's less people to even care. <laughs> yeah. And, wow. like, all you get is, like, doctor at the front, which is, you know... Uh, it's, it's okay. on planes. Tell me about it. I always try to make sure that I put doctor for my plane ticket in case I could get an upgrade, but it hasn't worked since. So you can't even. Oh, can't even get I always get the joke and like, well, what are you gonna do? I'm like, if someone asks me to help them because I'm a doctor, I'll ask if they're a river island ecosystem. And beyond that, I can't. Help yeah. You. Oh yeah. Well, I did in forensics. So I was like, well, unless you're dead, I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just wait for you to die at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. I'll take your fingerprints. It'll be, it'll be fine. That's all we got. Marks, marks. <laughs> so we've covered a bit there. Do you have any final tips for young players coming through the ranks of PhD honours or even early career not researching in your case, I suppose? Um, or, or yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a few like sort of points. So obviously find something that you enjoy, um, particularly in the research side of things because it's ultimately your... PhD, like you're the one that's going to be doing it. And if you don't derive enjoyment out of what you're doing, then your PhD will be very, very difficult. And it's going to be harder than it potentially needs to be. So you need to find enjoyment in what you do, but then you need to also find enjoyment throughout that PhD. Like you have to be a person by the end of your PhD. You can't be an empty shell of someone who's done this, you know, project and that let that be you. So you still need to have that balance throughout your PhD, whether that's, you know, going to the gym or, you know, eating lots of bad food, watching a lot of trash TV, all of which really helped me during my PhD. Um, So making sure that you're still a person by the end of it. Uh, And then the other thing, and now, again, coming with a bit of benefit of hindsight, is I think a PhD makes you a little bit selfish because you have your project that you're responsible for that is your baby and then particularly when you have supervisors you have certain expectations of them that they view your project of equal importance that you do Mm. I mean maybe this is how maybe this was only my experience but I was I mean I didn't have the best supervisor uh, around he would send stuff for feedback and then he'd wait till everybody else commented and be like, I agree with what everybody else has oh, said, or, you know, it was a bit lackluster. So maybe this isn't the case for everyone, um, but I think it's also important now that I am a supervisor of students to just remember that you are one PhD student this supervisor is looking after. That supervisor may also have some teaching and everything as well to it. So this be, is the most important thing to you, but not to them. Yeah, like, and that's 
perfectly fine. So, you know, you're, this is your baby, this is your thing, but don't expect them to hold your PhD to the same standard that you do because it's not their PhD, it's your PhD. They've done it, they've, yeah. they've lived yeah. through it. Um, so remember that, you know, your supervisors are human and that if they, you know, don't give you feedback in time, still, you know, be polite, ask for feedback. I mean, for the most part, if we haven't given you feedback, we've probably had a few other things come on our plates and, you know, just send us a polite email or an update. Probably slipped off our radar for a sec, but, you know, yes, we are here to help you. And, you know, that's yeah, but that's why setting about. expectations is really important. Yeah. Because, like, if you have a supervisor that's a professor or an associate professor, for sure they have, like, eight students mm. under them among a million other things that they have to do, yeah. teaching, everything else. Yeah. And, and like, what is realistic... You know, sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just making sure you manage your expectations of them yeah. um, is something that... Because I think a lot of the time people can be very harsh on their supervisors. And I, well, I was harsh on my supervisor, but he deserved 80% of the time. <laughs> um, 80%, that's, you know, that was 20% where I was unreasonable. Yeah, I'm only 20% unreasonable in any situation. <laughs> I saw that look, Ellery. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, just be aware that there are other priorities that that supervisor will have and, you know, they are human as well and they also need to have a life. So if they haven't got back to you, it's, it's not a personal thing. Awesome. Well, I think that's a fantastic bit of perspective to end on then. Um, Scott, do you mind just giving out your Twitter or do you like to keep things to yourself? No, by um, all means. Yeah. I need to remember what it is, no, actually. So extra, so proud. <laughs> You'd like to follow Scott and learn more about what's going on, particularly with the UTS Teaching and Learning Awards lately. Oh, Science Takeover. Hashtag Science Takeover. You can follow him at Scott Chadwick87. Um, otherwise, you can follow us, uh, alumni yet, or at Pelagic Johnson is mine. I still have to make ands. We're on Facebook. Have a look, subscribe, download, great review, so I get to stop asking. But otherwise, thank you so much for that, Scott. That was so much fun. Thank you, guys. It was my. This was fun for me. I'm like number one fan, guys. Part two. We didn't even get into forensics. Oh my god. Part two, part two. It's all good. Thank you so much for this. That was fantastic. Guys, this is like, you have no idea like how good an idea this is. Like, I wouldn't, like, because I think you liked, the alum not yet or whatever liked one of the tweets or you liked it and then I saw the, and I was like, podcast? I was like, what sort of secret life are these two people? And then I was like, and? Sometimes I go on the alum not yet account and just like stuff just to like bait people. Yeah. Well, mate, you hooked me in and I was like, and then I saw the dodgy Photoshop job and I was like, okay, let's, let's give it a listen. It's low fire. No. Mate, it was, you know, it had a charm to it. I'll give you that. And then, and then I started seeing people that work in PSP, like Kirsty and Paloma. And I was like, you know what, I, t- I see you guys as much as I can in the pracs, but I don't actually know what you do day to day. And that's the thing, we wanted to make it about just who's around. Yeah. Just, just to start, who we see. I was like, yeah. Paloma, what are you actually doing at PhD? Yeah. And like, Margaret came in and told us about fucking making carbonara for an hour. Like, <laughs> that was like our first good episode. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, was he at first Guinness? We did, like, we did some early Yeah, like, he was early on in the day. But there, I mean, there are like some of them I liked, like I, the the hangout ones. Like, but by a certain point, you get interested in you two and how you two interact. So there was the one where you were talking about like therapy animals and everything like that, and it was just an hour hanging out with you guys. And yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. and I was like on the train, and I was like, oh yeah, because like therapy animals. That, that's what it is. But like, I don't think we're interesting enough sometimes to have that appeal to just be. Hanging out with the internet. <laughs> oh, I was on like the I was on board. Yeah. yeah that's and then when really you were then when you were telling us like your the, your whole like Christmas buying extravaganza, mm-hmm. like I was it, it peeled back the layers of Anne that I had yet you to. You come upstairs on festive season time. Have you not seen? I I, I saw I saw on the Twitter yeah. the the image and poor Jack being like, what the hell? So <laughs> that but I also it brings me back to my PhD because when we did. Uh, and I had my PhD, um, we had a, there was a mannequin that was in one of the other offices and everyone was scared she'd so we adopted her into our office and there was a guy called Mike and he was from the UK and he'd go away for a period of time so then we'd replace him with Michaela, the mannequin yeah. and so we'd put her in all these like, comp, like positions so like we had, a, we had one where she was like photocopying her breasts on the, on the photocopier <laughs> like, and like there was all these Michaela's adventures and then it came to Christmas and we had the 12 days of Michaela and she had all these sort of Christmas poses. So there were times like where she had, you know, a Christmas bow just draped across her chest. Like there were ones where she was, you know, wrapping Christmas presents. And then there was one with like advent calendar chocolate nipples. And then, yeah. And so we had like a Facebook thing for it. And then the final piece was, uh, the mannequin nativity scene where we had <laughs> and it was set up in the foyer on level five yeah. we had Michaela as the you know the Mary and then we had another mannequin that was one of the three just wise so men nice. yeah it's like because we have them for the crime scene house so we just oh, like so like half of them had like blood on their faces and we we're like just trying to rub them out a little bit and then we you know got uh like a potato head, uh, you know, Mr. Potato Head, and then we wrapped that up in fur, and it was Potato Head, Baby Jesus. 